Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about the architects of the modern Premier League. If I was going to say it was two managers, I would expect the consensus would be that I'd be talking about Sir Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger. While they're really shoot titans of the English game and the Premier League era, it's not them. Now, with Ferguson and the success of his Manchester United team in the early 90s at the outset of the Premier League, it wasn't that radical. It, if you look at English football history post-war, you'd have the Liverpool team of the 70s and 80s, you'd have the Leeds team of the early 70s, you'd have the Manchester United team of the late 60s, and to an extent the Spurs team of the early 60s. You'd had periods in the English game of big clubs, dynastic. You'd had that. It wasn't something that was completely out of the ordinary. And if you look at the, the foundations of that success, you know, it was infrastructural, the size of Old Trafford, the size of the fan base, the history, the importance of the youth development within that, all of which is analogous to Matt Busby's teams of the 50s and 60s. So it wasn't a radical step away from Eng- what English football had done. You know, In other words, the Premier League was, in that regards, very similar to the Division One of the Football League in the post-war years. Now, it's a slightly different thing when you're talking about Arsene Wenger. He is, again, a huge part of the development of the Premier League. But he's not the architect of it. English football, by you know, autumn of 96, was moving towards where he took English football. What he did was expedite it, in the sense that you know, the professionalism, the training, all of that. But there had been... English football was moving towards it. They were spending more money. The Klinsman signing and what he brought to Spurs. You had more foreign players. You, you know, The role of Euro 96 and the success of the national team under Terry Venables who a lot of his manager, you know, some of his greatest success as a manager was at Barcelona in taking them to the European Cup final. English football was moving there, but what is that basically Ferguson and, and Wenger bookend the period. In other words, where the architects of the modern Premier League work is really how to deal with Ferguson and the success, the traditional success that Man United started to have at the outset of the Premier League. And how they dealt with it. So for me, the, the architects of the modern Premier League are Kevin Keegan and Kenny Dalglish. Now, I'm going to focus first on Kevin Keegan. I, I think he's a fascinating character. I, I, I call him English football's populist demagogue. He has this fine political understanding of when to make an entrance and when to get involved. In other words, it, when you talk about a player ending his career and getting into management, usually some of the benefits is that you're of that generation of the players that you are managing. You may be a few a few years older, but in other words, you've been in the league round about the same time they have. So you face the players. You understand the tactics and the team and where football is and what the players are going through and how to essentially, you've got that connection with the players. Which is why it's fascinating that when Keegan's career ends in the sort of mid-80s, 
is that he doesn't immediately get into football management. It's six, seven years later that he first takes a step to join Newcastle. So in other words, he gives up that advantages, but which makes it fascinating. Because really, what that means is that he didn't want to become manager at that point. And I think if you look at the actual structure of English football in that period of time, you can understand is that really the late 80s is a series of just disasters. You have the Luton-Bradford riot that was televised on national TV. It went out across the United Kingdom. You know, the Thatcher government got involved. There was the element that football fans would have to have compulsory IDs to get into the stadium. There was the, the element of hooliganism. You had the Bradford fire. You had Heysel which then leads English clubs being banned from European competition. You end up with the, 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 the nightmare, the disaster of Hillsborough that ends the, the 80s. And in all of this period of time, you have decline in attendance, you have crumbling Edwardian stadiums falling apart. You, have, you still have the blight of hooliganism. And as a result, Football is declining in terms of its importance to the nation as a whole. You know, it, being a football fan was con, was not something that you would talk about at a dinner party. It wasn't a generally middle class opposition, you know, middle class thing to do. And really, what that then all of these disasters then leads to the the Taylor Report and the element that the English game needs to be recast. So you have the beginnings of all-seater stadiums. You have the starting point, which then leads to more television games, more televised games. You then lead to Sky becoming the broadcaster. And I suppose the, the game that really was the harbinger of it is the Liverpool-Arsenal game at the end of the 88-89 season. It's an evening game, nationally televised. It's appointment viewing. You watch it down the pub or at home. You rushed home. It was a huge thing. It was basically someone was going to win the title that night. It, you had Liverpool, the dominant team for the past all 20 years, at home, impregnable Anfield, against the up-and-coming Arsenal under George Graham, who had to score two goal, two clear goals to win, and they win it in the last minute. That was really at which point the English game started to move towards the Premier League. You could see the power that that game could have and the viewership and the interest that it generated. You know, and then you combine that with the Taylor Report. By the time you reach sort of the early 90s and the, the advent of the Premier League, football was changing physically. The landscape was changing. You were getting new stadiums, new stands. There was you know, the revolution of Sky TV and the idea that you know, satellite dish and you know, not having just the standard terrestrial television channels. And that's when Kevin Keegan makes his move back into English football and into management. It's becoming more glamorous. It's becoming more important to the wider populace. That's when he you know, comes in on his you know, white charger and saves Newcastle. Because when he joins the club, there you know few games left of the season. They're dangerously close to falling into the old third division. Yeah. 
but they've got a brand new owner. He's wealthy, so John Hall, local man made good, and he's going to pour money into making Newcastle United get them back to their rightful position. And Keegan is the one that leads it. He you know, ended his career several years earlier there, and he was hero-worshipped. And so he then turns up with this money coming into the game and pushes Newcastle forward. So really, he basically anticipates the rise of populism in football, the explosion in television coverage, all-seater stadiums, the sort of rise of the middle-class football fan. You know, he's a name brand, you know, in the sense of you know his television appearances, his marketing, his punditry, his being a famous ex-player, and he's someone that fills that sort of power vacuum. If you look, in other words, the general population and football fans and the government and I think the clubs themselves were ready for the Premier League. They were ready for to regenerate football, to rebrand it. And to push it forward into the you know, coming millennium. The, the stakeholders who weren't really ready was actually the players and the managers themselves. When you get to 92-93, you know, the Liverpool team are on their decline. You know, Dalglish has you know, resigned, just worn down by you know, the years of management, the stresses and strains from Hillsborough which is perfectly understandable. You know, even the, the Arsenal team, you know, the two teams in the late 80s, early 90s that were at the pinnacle, both of them are declining. So you've got a sort of vacuum and you've got the situation, you've got these sort of smaller clubs, you've got the likes of Swindon, Oldham, and, and as a result, and there's no really famous managers. If you look at the managers in and around that sort of time period, you've got Howard Wilkinson, whose Leeds team won the final Division One before it became the Premier League. He's a dour Yorkshireman. He's not particularly media savvy. And the, the Leeds team have only just come up a couple of years prior, prior to that from Division Two. They're not household names in that regard. They're, you know, the most famous players in... You know, English football of the early 90s, you've got Gascoigne. Well, he's just moved from Spurs to Lazio, so he's not playing in the Premier League. You say Gary Lineker. Well, he's just left Spurs. He's now playing out in Japan. By about 93, 94, his career has, has ended. You know, even you look at the likes of Waddle, he, you know, he, he'd passed his peak, you know, and he was now just at Sheffield Wednesday, who were a relatively unfashionable club. There was... You know, in terms of players and managers, there was no one really hugely famous at that time that would have had a sort of name recognition outside of you know the world of football. It, it, probably the closest, even 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 Ferguson. You know, he'd only you know, two years, pre, two three years previously, he had to win the FA Cup to just really cling on to his job. You know, Manchester United hadn't won a league title in a generation, so they and what Keegan is able to do when he eventually takes Newcastle up to the Premier League in a you know, very cavalier, very attacking, very interesting fashion is to sort of fill that vacuum, and to an extent when you know Kenny Dalglish returns to the dugout at Blackburn 
and by this time, you know, Ferguson and Manchester United are now becoming the team of the Premier League. They then, and you've got players like Cantona to an extent, Shearer, who then start to fill the gap that really had existed at the beginning of the Premier League. So, I suppose to look at Keegan and sort of the relationship, really. So you've got, you know, what, not only does Sir John Hall buy Newcastle United, he's go, he you know, wants to redevelop the stadium. He wants to, you know, and as part of a wider regeneration of the city, which is really sort of leading up to sort of 1997, you know, things can only get better, and Labour, you know, rolling into office on a, on a huge majority. It, you know, regeneration and an element of sort of commercialisation that come into it. <laughs> so... What you need to then do, really, is almost take a step back and understand Keegan's psychology. You know, some of the best years of his career were spent in Germany. You know, he left Liverpool to go to Hamburg, where he won the Ballon d'Or. You know, best player in, in the world. You know, but the English public don't witness that. Even his Liverpool legacy, which is unimpeachable, one of the best players Liverpool have ever had. But that had been sort of crowded out. Because you had Dalglish, you had Sunes, you had Rush, you had Barnes, you had Hansen, all of whom by the early 90s were still very important you know, in football and the wider public. You had Hansen as a, as a pundit, you know, Dalglish was a player manager, you'd had Sunes was chosen as sort of the next you know, great Liverpool manager <laughs> after his success at Rangers, you know, then Dalglish goes to Blackburn. So in other words, he's only just one part of an overall hugely, you know, period of unbridled and unbroken success at Liverpool. He's very important, but he is, you know, the first amongst equals. You know, there isn't just, and if you were probably going to say in the general public's view, who was more important to Liverpool at that time in the early 90s, well, it's more down Gleish because the general population would have seen Dalglish play in a way that the earlier generation who didn't see Keegan as much because there wasn't as much television, televised football in his career. You know, he's part of that sort of lost generation of the 70s that really is a period of sort of malaise and decline. He's the best player on an otherwise you know, unspectacular team. They don't qualify for 74 or 78 World Cup. You know, the, the one team that do from the British Isles it's the Scotland team who are the backbone of Liverpool and a couple of the other big teams in England at that time. So as a result, you know he misses out on the, you know the bonanza that is sixty six and seventy in the Alf Ramsey years, and he then misses out on the flip side of it the eighty six ninety Gaza Lineker Bobby Robson era. You know the closest he really gets is the eighty two World Cup. And there's an element of injury drama. You know, he turns up at the World Cup with a back injury. He disagrees with the FA doctor's prognosis. So he basically goes AWOL. He gets into a tiny Mazda, drives two, three hours to the nearest airport, hires a private jet and flies himself to Germany without permission, has his own private you know, doctor in Germany, perform epidurals and do a couple of you know, procedures. He then flies back and is able to just about make the bench for the last game. And England need a win to go through to the next stage. He comes on, the ball gets crossed to the back post, he gets his head on it, and it flies just wide. In other words, he's almost, in effect, heroic, but falls short. Almost, in a way, a little bit of a, 
a martyr. And really, his post-playing career before management, it was famous. You know, he'd done a bit of punditry, he'd had some success in business. But part of, you know, he spent a lot of time living abroad in Spain, playing golf. He had this desire to be loved. He needed to be the main man. He wanted fame, but and he, but he had no outlet. <laughs> you know, he, every move that he made in his sort of playing career had a an element of just key understanding of populism and crowds. In other words, when he leaves Hamburg, he goes not to one of the bigger clubs to be a role player, he goes to Southampton. And it's a shock. In other words, they manage to keep the, this sign, this huge signing a secret until the day he's basically announced at the Dell. You know, there's a surge of interest. You know, he is he's able to lead Southampton to third in the league, one of the highest league positions ever. And you know, he, he can take them as far as they can go and the crowds and all the rest of it. And he was really the sort of the leader of that. He was the person that, you know, was able to take Southampton to where they had never been previously. But there was a but when his career starts to decline, when he realizes that he can't be, you know, a difference changer in the first division, he then goes to Newcastle, where he gets a hero reception. And finish his career to a loving crowd, and he's you know, essentially it's almost as if it's something out of a western. You know, he as a this little little guy who in the sort of tough world of the late sixties and early seventies English football isn't expected to succeed, and just by sheer willpower gets from unfashionable Scunthorpe gets signed by Liverpool, and then is part of this this, this huge dynastic Liverpool team. You know, and then he you know, trailblazes out to Germany. You know, he's on national television. You know, he does adverts and marketing in a way that you know some of the players of the seventies had done that, but not to the extent Keegan did. He had that awareness. You know, in his post playing career, he has success in business in a way that a lot of other players of his generation didn't. And as a result he was able to play into the sort of inner psychology of Newcastle as a place. In other words, there had been decline in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And if you look at Newcastle, they had the sort of dividend of the Wolves End Boys Club and the area producing fantastic local talent. You know, classic examples being Waddle and Gaza. But what happens? That doesn't help Newcastle United as a club. They, they are so strapped for cash, they sell Waddle and Gaza to Spurs. They then get relegated, and neither of them ever returned. There was no emotionally satisfying denouement. You know, the closest Gaza ever came to going back to Newcastle was Middlesbrough, and that was really the late 90s, the terminal decline phase of, of his career. And so what Keegan understands and is that they're a flock without a shepherd and he's a shepherd without a flock. And that's the sort of symbiotic relationship that he builds. In other words, he doesn't go back to Southampton because the ground can't get any bigger, especially with the Taylor report, the, the infrastructure of the club. It, he has taken that club when in his playing career as far as it's ever really going to go. Whereby Newcastle in the lower division with the uh, you know incoming with the owner, he knows that that club can go somewhere because of the money that's being put in. And so he comes in at the end of the season, saves them from relegation to the old second division, leads them to the Premier League in a very cavalier, very interesting fashion. But what's interesting is is that this is where the sort of rise of the modern manager comes from. 
it's, you know, rich owner bringing you in. In other words, they sack Ozzy Ardiles. He's not done a bad job. He's you know done the best that he can with the resource he has. But Sir John Hall doesn't want to give Ozzy the money to then push them up the league. He wants it to be Keegan. So Ardiles is starved of the money and then is pushed aside. And then it's Keegan that basically gets the... You know, success of, oh, I've saved Newcastle from the drop. He then gets the money and pushes them up into the Premier League. But it's that narrative of instantaneous results. You know, the rising media coverage. In other words, when he goes back to Newcastle, you know, he, thousands of fans you know, come out to you know, meet him. He's, you know, they're all wearing you know, black and white replica shirts. It becomes a very iconic sort of 90s image of Newcastle signing someone for large amounts of money. And whereby you know, previously signings would be made in the sort of, you know, you'd have a small media gathering you know, in the bowels of the sort of Victorian main stand. Whereby now when Newcastle signs someone, you know, there's a huge press conference. Keegan then takes them out onto the sort of vista and there's thousands of adoring fans cheering them on and that Keegan's delivered another fantastic signing. You know, it's instantaneous results and the way how he manages Newcastle, you know, the Keegan Newcastle team, no, it, you know, don't perform in the cups at all. Considering a team that's, you know, so fantastically interesting and attacking, they don't do very well in the cups. You know, you have the rise of the mid-season signings. So, you classic example is the ninety-five, ninety-six Tino Espria signing. Did they really? Did that team need another attacking player that sort of bolted on awkwardly? Not really. But the media, the hype that that created. You know, he, you know, Keegan signs foreign players. You know, experienced players. In other words, it's a he's starting to create a culture of instant success, and it's you know. And it, he basically gives the fans really what they want, viscerally. And he's the one that's delivered it. He's the one that is the Messiah. He's the one that can provide this level of un, this huge, you know, unimaginable le- level of success in such a short time period. So, I mean, one of the things when Keegan leaves eventually is that... and. Kenny Dalglish takes over and they're slowly but surely declining, is that Keeganism becomes repurposed in cup runs. They get to the 98 cup final, the 99 FA cup final, they lose both finals to Arsenal and Manchester United, but it's a way of still being in the national zeitgeist, still being on you know national television on cup final day. You have the, when they get into the Champions League and they beat Bar- a great Barcelona team 3-2 at St James's Park, it's on ITV. It's watched by a, a just. It was one of the fabulous results. It's probably the most Keegan result, you know, the best example of Keeganism. And yet the ultimate irony is he wasn't the manager at the time. But so I think to really understand Keegan, what you have to work with is that in some respect he he's an accidental visionary. In other words, you know, he's not a long term planner. In other words, his way of dealing with solutions is very straightforward. It is, we need to have success now. In other words, I think probably the most admirable element of Keeganism, something that I personally, I can see the benefits and I can see the downsides. And I think to an extent, there's probably more, relatively speaking, more downsides than there are upsides. Is that 
Ferguson is more of a traditionalist. It's youth development. It's clear signings. It's building from the back. It's you know building a spine of a team. It's the stadium. It's the commercial side of it. All of it is based and you know the training ground. All of it and the micromanagement of it. In other words, the classics Ferguson tale is you know he finds out the players are all going out for a house party for a birthday and then going out to nightclubbing and he's in the car he's in the car round the corner and bursts in and stops the party. It's that kind of level of control and thought process that goes into it. And the way how he took a decent, a pretty good United team of the late 80s and takes out the drinkers and starts to rebuild it in his own image in a long-term sense, which is really what creates the dynasty Manchester United team. Whereby with Keegan, it's completely different. I mean, one of the best stories that ever gets told about when he arrives at Newcastle as a manager is he gets shown around the facilities and he, they show him the shower room and he sees on the, the tiles this sort of pond, the, the, the shower scum from when he was a player there. So instead of the way how he sees it and the way how he understands sort of psychology that a sort of demagogue populist can do is he's like, I'm going to get this fixed. So... He basically organises it that someone comes in that night and cleans the whole thing out, makes it look pr you know, pris pristine, crystal clean, and so that when he gets introduced to the players the next day, when they come into the, the shower area, it's perfect. In other words, when Keegan has turned up, he's almost challenged Anakid it. Within le he's barely been at the club one day, and yet he's somehow managed to get this you know horrible manky shower all perfectly clean. And it's that kind of power that he actually is able to sort of utilise. And it's that kind of energy, which is fascinating and it's interesting. But at the same time, it's it always basically fails when it comes up against something like Ferguson and the infrastructure side of it. I mean, even if you then bring to bring in sort of Kenny Dalglish for a moment, I'll talk about Kenny Dalglish slightly later in the podcast, but... You know, basically, Dalglish, when he turns up in Newcastle, sort of manages the decline. They have great moments in the Cups, but they're no longer, you know, competing with United in the league. I mean, one of the things he does is he signs Barnes and Rush, two of the players from his sort of Liverpool team of the late 80s, who are at this point, you know, in decline. You know, that Newcastle team gets basically, you know, overtaken by Wenger and Arsenal to be the... the prominent challenger to United's hegemony. If you look at sort of Dalgleish when he's at Blackburn, originally as sort of a director of football sort of role, which then takes on he takes on the manager's job, is that he's quite traditional. Uh, he buys English and young, he's not buying foreign players in the same way that Kevin Keegan does. I mean what it comes down to is almost two competing sort of Keegans. You have Brian Keegan and accidental visionary. In other words, one of the the way how accidental visionary Keegan works. He, in other words, he sort of foresees it, but doesn't see the end, the natural end to what he does. So, in other words, when he doesn't show any interest in the cup, because for him, if you're going to do this, you have to go for the league. That is the most important thing to him. He wants to win the league. He wants to take the, the league away from Manchester United. He wants to deliver a league to Newcastle. 
is that he doesn't really see that the logical end point to that is is that the cups will decline in interest if basically one of the biggest clubs in the country, Newcastle, in terms of the money they're spending, in terms of the success in challenging United, are only focused on the league. Like one of the things he does is that he sees that the reserve team are playing at St James's Park and it's damaging the, the pitch. So for him, his solution is, I'll get rid of the reserve team. I don't need the reserve team. What I need right now is the the playing surface to be in pristine condition for the first team so that we can play the good football to compete with United. It's making it's paramount. In other words, for him, winning the FA Cup wasn't enough success as a manager. What he needed was to win the league. He needed to depose Ferguson and United. One of the things that he does is the way how he basically has he's attenuated to the fan base and what the fan base needs. So in other words, if they fall that's like when they fall short in ninety five, ninety six, his solution to it is to buy Kevin is to buy Alan Shearer for a world record fee. You know, brings home a Geordie hero back into the black and white stripes, you know, takes Shearer away from Manchester United and the fans just go He's just literally been Euro 96 lead scorer. He's a national hero and he brings them home. And it's brilliant and it just massively brings the, the fan base out. You know, the, the replica shirts and all of the other bits and pieces and the sort of the element, the creeping commercialization into British football and the Premier League. You know, he gets, he, he essentially. You know, because discontinuing the reserve team, it damages the youth system. But I mean, what he can—he basically has this awareness that he cannot compete with United infrastructurally. So really, in the end, what he does is rather than you know tries to build a long term, improve the youth system and use the abundant you know natural resource that the Newcastle and the surrounding area has for football, he just basically you know pushes the youth system to one side. In other words, it, he allows the youth system to wither on the vine. He lets go of a load of players. The classic example is Darren Huckabee, who's a talented you know, YTS player at Newcastle, sort of on the verge of, you know, the he's on the reserve team, on the verge of getting into close to the first team. He's a sort of role player that if Ferguson had had him at United, would have utilised him as a sort of super sub, a guy that you can have on the bench. Keegan just sees, well, I don't think that you're... You know, instantaneously going to help me you know, overtake United. I'll sell you to Coventry for one million pounds because I need the one million pounds to you know kick on with my you know ideas and my in Keeganism the win now mentality. So he goes to Coventry and has quite a lot of success. He scores a couple of goals against Newcastle. It's that kind. In the end, the one million pounds that he gets for him isn't enough to to compete with United, and he u loses that resource. And the Newcastle youth system declines, and isn't able to provide him the players that the United youth system did. I mean, in some ways, Keegan, the accidental visionary Keegan, sort of sees the problem, but doesn't have an alternative idea to it. He just basically kicks on with sort of the blinkers on. In other words, he needs it now. The success has to be now. There's no idea of long-term planning. There's an, there's an underlying 
intellectual bankruptcy. Brian Keegan just basically gets rid of the problem and just kicks on with, even though that he's storing up problems that basically sows the seeds of his Keeganism's own demise. In other words, he's always going for the the glory shot, the trick shot to win. In other words, he's never playing a long-term strategy. In other words, he will just, okay, if I don't win the league, I'll get Alan Shearer, and that will pump up the interest for the country and for Newcastle, and I will be the person who's led him there. It's, you know, probably the last time he has a sort of brilliant strategic move to is selling Andy Cole in 1995. He falls out of Andy Cole because at this time they'd signed Cole from Bristol City. He'd had some fantastic success in the Premier League, scored a lot of goals. And he'd but he'd fallen out a little bit with Keegan. And there was an element of conflict. In other words, you know. Newcastle have this great tradition of number nines. You've got Jackie Milburn, you've got Kevin Keegan, and Andy Cole was the next you know person along the line. He'd been you know an un- relatively unheralded signing, but he'd had all of this success when he gets into the Premier League. But then Keegan you know falls out with him and sells him to Manchester United, his biggest competitor. Which is a fascinating transfer, but he, he gets the money, and that's the, probably the last time that he makes a. It's a move that goes against what the fans want. In other words, the fans are absolutely shocked by this, but it's the classic Keegan move that when they announce the signing, there's a crowd outside New outside the stadium, almost like a baying mob. Someone that it's a but it's a mob he's created by his managerial sort of strategy, his popularism, his that Newcastle United is Kevin Keegan and I am Newcastle United. And that, you know, the person that goes against that, in other words, if you go against Keegan, you're going against Newcastle, and that's Andy Cole, and he then goes to United. So but Keegan goes out into the crowd to explain them personally. It's that kind of you know, that's what a popularist demagogue would do. Is that he they would have the belief that I am I am the people, I can explain to them, and I can then... And it does have success. You know, they sign Les Ferdinand instead. But... In the end, it always... There's not that level of strategic thinking. And he's not interested enough in the long term. If you look at his managerial career as a whole... In the end, by the time he hits the 1997, Newcastle was still able to compete with United, but the fallout from losing the 12-point lead in 95-96, it's the classic demagogue response. It's the tearful resignation, and it's the meet and the sort of mourning in Newcastle that comes as a result of it. Instead of when it when basically Kevin Keegan as a manager and sort of brand Keegan and accidental visionary Keegan come up against something that's insurmountable, they bail. He'll he will just bail on that situation. Yeah, he the the irony is is that he's never actually been sacked. He's always left. He's never to have a manager career at that kind of high level and never get sacked or asked to leave. He's always the one that he always has that awareness of when. His moment is the perfect moment for him to leave. You know, to an extent, if you look at his career as a sort of whole, there isn't a huge amount of growth. He t- it's the same process with sort of ever declining results as the nineties. You know, basically moves into the two thousands. 
you know, one of the things that I, that he creates as this rise of the media manager is this ideology. Is I've always seen a, a sort of the Kevin Keegan Newcastle team of the nineties as a pure distillation of Keegan the player. In other words, that you know, for my generation and for people growing up in the late eighties and nineties who didn't see Keegan, who wouldn't really have an understanding of him as a player, it's an element of self mythologizing. In other words, you can't see how I played, but this is you know an example. This is the distillation of it, and so you know he basically taps into the fans' beliefs and he starts to mould it. In other words, he understands that Newcastle love number nines, so you know he ends up with Andy Cole. He ends up with Alan Shearer, <laughs> and because of the his importance to the fans and the city as a whole is that they then take on his beliefs in other words they want more and more attacking players even if that ends up essentially uh, you almost create sort of a mary rose situation it becomes the most wonderful battleship but it just sinks 15 minutes outside of the, the harbor in front of the you know the great and the good and the unwashed it's that kind of element that he and if you then sort of look into it it's it's brilliant in a way in the sense that you know the marriage of sort of the idea of Sir John Hall you know local boy local man made good who then helps redevelop the stadium Newcastle as a as a whole you know the idea of bringing Beardsley back he brings Shearer back you know he understands the damage that you know as I've said earlier with Waddle and Gascoigne leaving. He's now part of that. He's the person that can bring players back. And so if you look at his career once he leaves Newcastle, instead of going to another Premier League team, one of the most fascinating sort of points is, why does he never end up at Liverpool? You know, you think, you know, he had a great run at Newcastle, you know, Liverpool were declining. Surely that sort of white charger element that Keegan brings to management would have worked at Anfield. And yet it never quite happens. It never even really comes close to happening. Because I suppose, in some regards, what Keegan needs in terms of his own personal psychology and his management vision, he needs to be the most important thing in it. He can't just be one part of a already big superstructure. In other words, if you join Liverpool as a manager, you get classed with Shankly, with Fagan, with Dalglish, with... All of this sort of managers before you get basically you're in you become part of that you know timeline. It's almost like kings and queens of Great Britain that kind of thing. You are just one part of it. Whereby if it, when he goes to Newcastle originally he goes there as sort of general manager. The the irony and the the, the fascinating part is is that both Keegan and Dalglish have that kind of similarity. You know, they both you know once. Dalglish leaves Liverpool. And I think one of the things that is probably understated about him in terms of media, and one of the things that I admire most about it is his personal history. Basically, when he's a sort of apprentice at Celtic, he goes to a, you know, as part of this, sort of the, the, not quite the squad, but basically as part of this Celtic delegation, he goes to a game 
at uh, Ibrox in the early 70s. It's uh, Celtic versus Rangers, and there's a crush, and it's a huge tragedy. I think something in the region of about 50, found about 50 people die, and he was there and witnessed that. And you have the high school tragedy, at which point Keegan, uh, sorry, Dalglish is the player, you know, the leader of Liverpool, and it's after that game and all of the death, which he witnessed, you know, up close and personal. He's then made the manager a couple of days afterwards, and he's obviously the manager at Hillsborough. So, in other words, in his footballing career, he's witnessed somewhere in the region of about two hundred fatalities. I mean, if you were a you know soldier, if you were a police officer, a probably maybe even sort of a nurse, that you you. Ha- to have witnessed that kind of level of you know death in such a short period of time, in other words, three games of football, in other words, you know, just to have been there for all of those instances and the sort of impact it must have had, especially in the last two, him being the sort of main Liverpool player and then as the manager, it's I can and the sort of pressure of being Liverpool manager, I can fully understand why he leaves when he does. In the early 90s, before the advent of the Premier League, I can understand how someone would be just completely worn down to the nub and needing some sort of time away. And, you know, I can understand him, you know, once the Premier League starts getting up and running, of wanting to get back, but not necessarily to Liverpool because of the sort of emotional element of that but to have a new project. So he goes there as a sort of general manager. And, you know, so again, similar to Keegan, there's, you know, Sir Jack Walker, he's a steel baron who's from the local area, and he wants to build up, you know, Blackburn Rovers and take them back to, you know, their, I wouldn't say rightful position, but, you know, to get them back competitive. Because I think uh, one of the interesting elements is that the start of the Premier League era was that with both... Sir Jack Walker and Sir John Hall, they saw a an opening. In other words, you by the time you get to ninety two, ninety three, you know, Clough is you know, completely you know declined, he's ravaged by alcohol, he's not in a position to and Nottingham Forest as a club aren't in a position, you know, to you know really kick on in the Premier League. In ninety three they're relegated. You've got the strange decline of London football at that point. You have the you know the beginnings of the bung scandal at Arsenal. They start they decline from that sort of the team that you know won in eighty nine. You then have Tottenham. They're in a complete mess with the battle between Sir Alan well, Alan Sugar now Sir Alan Sugar or Sugar even and Terry Venables for control of the club. Chelsea are having the battle between Ken Bates and Matthew Harding, and you know, essentially the battle for you know, control over Stamford Bridge and owning the ground. So none of those clubs are in a position to you know, really challenge. Leeds are still quite a small club. You know, they have this tradition from the Revy years, but they're, they're, you know, they have the success of 91, but that is, isn't is a, a, almost a one-off success. It's not a standpoint to further glory. You know, Everton are in decline. So there was a, a gap, and you know, Man United fill it, but both Walker and Hall realise that they that there is a 
there's gap for someone to go in and compete with United and they have the money and because of, of the Premier League as it was there wasn't a sh- you know, some of the big clubs were in decline you had you know the likes of sort of Norwich you know nearly winning the first you know Premier League title there wasn't the same level of you know there was still it's only a few years you know maybe sort of 10 15 years that some of the smaller clubs started to decline so you you lost Swindon came up then went straight down Oldham go down you know Bradford went it becomes a situation where the clubs get bigger and bigger and bigger and you get what is now we have is the sort of top six that doesn't really exist in early 90s Premier League football and so they realise with the money that they have in comparison with all of the clubs in the Premier League they can they really can push forward in a way that you probably if they would you know if so John Hall and Jack Walker were here now. That the money that they would have put in wouldn't get you anywhere near as far. That would get you into the Premier League. It wouldn't get you much further along. And both Dalglish and Keegan realise that with that money they can compete and that it's a shortcut that you can take Blackburn from near enough near relegation to Division Three. You can get them, you know, competing with Manchester United within sort of two to three years. 